this week on the Backtable podcast. So my message to the aspiring foreign graduate or laryngology residency applicant is be aware of the challenges lie ahead, but it is really critical that you enjoy the ride. I don't think you'd hear a person complain about the timing, you know, yeah, all these were barriers, but at the same time, it made me a better person overall. It made my life more interesting and I've had more experiences now. This extremely convoluted path that I took from a relatively small town in southern India all the way to, you know, where I am today. And I'm really thankful to those experiences and, you know, the individuals that shape those experiences. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist, and I have a dear friend and special guest today. I have Dr. Amal Isaiah. He's a pediatric otolaryngologist, an associate professor and surgeon scientist at the University of Maryland. He is here today to talk to us about the international medical graduate applying for otolaryngology in the U.S. and then continuing their practice here. Welcome to the show, Amal. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much, Gopi. Great to be here. So for our listeners, just to give you guys a little background, Amal was our fellow at uh, UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas at Children's there 2015 to 16. Is that right, Amal? That is correct. Yeah. And so that was probably only, you know, my second year out, quote, as staff or attending. And so I have to say, Amal kind of got me through one of my early years in my practice because I think there was a lot of times I'm like, Amal, does this sound right to you? I really don't know what I'm doing. So thank you for... Uh, getting me through that uh, second year of my practice. So first, uh, as we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up and then get into sort of what your practice is like now. Sure. Thank you. I'm Amal, as you guys just heard. I was born and raised in a state called Kerala in southern India, uh, where I spent all of my childhood until I graduated from high school and went up to a medical school in a city called Bangalore, also called Bengaluru now. And that's where I had heard about an opportunity to go abroad, go to the UK to do my higher studies, uh, doctoral studies. So winning a scholarship at that time called the Rhodes Scholarship took me to Oxford, England, where I studied the neural basis of cochlear implantation, basically looking at outcomes in animal models, uh, comparing the outcomes of bilateral cochlear implantation versus unilateral cochlear implantation in an animal model. Sometime during that tenure, I thought maybe I should give it a try to a trying to match in an otolaryngology residency program in the U.S. Uh, because opportunities were a little, I would say, meager in the U.K. at that time. It's a very small specialty and very hard to get a training spot. So I asked around and I, the first thing I was told was it's impossible to match into ENT as a foreign graduate. And that kind of put me off, but I thought I'll give it a try anyways. And a couple of years later, I, I found out I matched into ENT essentially off the internet. But I should say that there was a lot of help from a lot of people whom we shall discuss and acknowledge over the course of this interview. But I then came to University of Maryland, where I was really fortunate to have matched. I did my residency, went to UT Southwestern for my fellowship and came back to my home institution as a faculty where I've been ever since. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist by training, and I spent about 60 to 70% of my time uh, during the week on clinical care of infants and children with ear, nose and throat problems. 
And the rest of the time I partake in uh, research, primarily outcomes-based research in children's brain development, uh, related to children's brain development. The rest of the time is kind of split between education and uh, taking part in collaborative research with uh, the undergraduate campus at University of Maryland College Park. I enjoy what I do. In fact, I don't think I would have picked anything else looking back. And uh, in my spare time, I enjoy spending time with my family, my wife and two kids, uh, my two kids who are age five and uh, one and a half respectively. So that's that's in summary what I what I do and what I have done thus far. For our listeners, I think when you talk to any pediatric otolaryngologist, most of us can genuinely tell you that we actually really love what we do. So I, it was nice to hear <laughs> you say that as well, Mo. Absolutely. Yeah. So just kind of rewinding. So was the time, the Rhodes Scholarship during your medical school years? Was it before, after? Where did that fit in to your training? I first heard about the Rhodes Scholarship when I was a third year medical student. One of the other uh, students that wanted from from our medical school, uh, my medical school, St. John's Medical College, it's it's quite small. It, it only takes, or at least during that time, it only took 60 students a year, uh, but it had a pretty good national reputation. And among physician graduates, it produced a maximum number of Rhodes Scholars. So we, we had heard about it here and there. I first thought about the idea of graduate medical education during my second year, that I wasn't really fond of just following the usual pattern of going into, you know, a postgraduate uh, residency training. Maybe I thought I, I would do science for a little bit and, you know, see what, what life is like and then get back to clinical medicine. Because we had had some exposure to others having done it before, I thought it was pretty cool. And I could tell you, I, I, was, I was a very average student, but somehow the opportunity of going somewhere else with full funding. I mean, of course, education outside India at that time was going to be extremely expensive. So uh, my thought was if I could get funding, putting in the effort was entirely worthwhile. And that's how I decided to give it a try. Of course, the criteria were completely different. It meant that, you know, as a candidate, you have to be a little bit more all-rounded, not just perform or excel academically. You needed to be good at extracurricular stuff such as music and sports and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's never one thing that gets you that scholarship. But, you know, looking back, I really thought that, you know, just collecting points here and there got me the candidacy there. But I have to say there were a lot of other good candidates from my medical school class as well. In fact, I still remember my my best buddy, Rohit Rao, who was also applying for opportunities to pursue grad school abroad. We had brainstormed all these opportunities over many, many cups of tea at our medical school. And just looking back, those were some of the best times uh, that I've relished to this day. Your time at Oxford, the Rhodes Scholar, the PhD, that's a huge achievement. And it's a bit of an outlier, right? I mean, I would tell you, I don't, none of us have that, whether you're an international medical graduate or a U.S. medical graduate. How do you advise the international medical graduate who, you know, most people aren't going to have that? Do you advise them to pursue research in the U.S.? Like, how do they sort of uh, make the connection, right? It, It seems like the goal is to make some sort of connection with a center, whether it's through further training or research or tell me. What's interesting is otolaryngology is not that popular a specialty in India. So when I was a medical student, it was kind of the least favorite, or I would say the definitely the bottom quartile. I was inspired to pursue it mainly because my my father, who is an otolaryngologist still in practice today, 
And, you know, he, he'd talk about his work on a day-to-day basis. And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. Um, you know, at some point of time, he'd, he'd mentioned about uh, residency training and being an otolaryngologist in the U.S., which was considered one of the, you know, the most competitive specialties. And, and that was the first time I had heard about otolaryngology as being so competitive. So uh, you're right. I mean, it is uh, it is incredibly tough for a foreign graduate to to match, but it's not impossible. In fact, we matched a foreign graduate uh, this year, um, someone named Chandala, Chandala Chitkupi. So Chandala did her postgraduate training in otolaryngology in India, then was committed enough to the specialty that she moved over here and spent, I, I believe, almost five years uh, doing otolaryngology research at Jefferson, at Thomas Jefferson University, which is where you train. Yeah. So, and she matched. And, you know, you look at her resume, it will tell you what, what needs to be done. She, you know, she came here, made some connections and but at the same time, was incredibly passionate about what she wanted to do. She published on an average five to six papers every year that she was here and possibly even more some of the years. And her resume at the end of the day looked stellar. During those years that she was here, she made the important connections, which made people think, OK, this is someone who we could train, someone who we could uh, we could really have in our residency program. So I think it is not impossible, but the road ahead is quite tough. And if you are genuinely passionate about it, the first thing to do is to actually do pre-residency research. I do not believe there are other easy ways to match into otolaryngology, but I think for a foreign graduate, you know, there, there are many, many different ways to try and improve your chances. But I would say the most important one is to do high quality research in the U.S., not elsewhere, in the U.S., at a medium to a large size program, which, I mean, in terms of residency program. It's great that you brought up uh, the incoming resident. Um, You mentioned that she had already done a residency, is that correct, in otolaryngology in India? Correct. Before she came here? Yes. Okay. I remember I took the Osler board prep. This was fall uh, or fall of 2012. Actually, maybe it was, yeah, during the board prep, I met uh, an Indian woman. She was an otolaryngologist, had done her residency in India, then came over, did a PEDS fellowship in Memphis, and then matched into a residency in otolaryngology. We're studying for the boards at the same time. She was brilliant. Uh, Dr. Mona Shetty, she's out in Memphis and has her own practice. It's, it's crazy because the amount of training, right, the amount of pathology that you see in your, you know, if you've already done a residency in India and the technology and the treatment patterns, you know, the management, clinical algorithms, I would say at most of the centers are up to par. I've had the unfortunate experience within our own family in India to have different uh, otolaryngology, head neck issues and, uh, you know, cancer and things like that to, to know the options that are there. So, you know, you are getting some pretty stellar candidates. Let me ask you a question, though. How does one get plugged into research? I mean, do you have to know somebody who's already doing research there? Do you just send cold emails? How do you even get your foot in the door? It's a tough road. I mean, you know, if it, as you know, we get plenty of cold calls, emails every day, and, you know, it's impossible to filter and identify real talent. If you actually look at Chandala or many of the others who've matched into otolaryngology programs here by having been a research fellow or having spent dedicated research time in the U.S., it is usually via 
meetings or opportunities that bring them over here for a short period of time. So whether it is a two-month tenure for additional training or society-sponsored fellowships that sometimes bring foreign graduates here, those usually open a few doors for you to actually pursue a short-term research fellowship, during which time you, you work really hard and you show promise. And with that, typically, you opened enough of an opportunity for yourself that you start uh, sort of consolidating your position from then. I think majority of the candidates that I know, majority of the applicants that I've known thus far, they've done exactly that. So let's say you have a medical student in India that reaches out to you. Do you recommend that they apply for an otolaryngology residency and apply for research opportunities, kind of get everything sort of going because you just don't know when these opportunities might come up? Or how do you, if somebody reaches out to you, how do you counsel them? So great question. You know, times have changed as previously we used to have an ability to filter applicants based on USMLE scores. I mean, now we know that the step one score uh, methodology has changed in entirety. Previously used to have a numeric score and now it has turned to a pass-fail system. So that imposes great challenges. So first of all, we used to be able to take a subset of the applicants previously and then, you know, try and counsel them based on what they had at that time, whether it was worthwhile to pursue any anything further. Now, you don't even have that information and, you know, it's it's really challenging to tell people what needs to be done. I would say if I have to counsel someone, I would still say, look at opportunities to do research. And that starts with really having a well-rounded CV uh, from India, whether or not that includes postgraduate training that I'm not so sure at this point of time. But I think one advantage of postgraduate training in, in India is because it is shorter, significantly shorter, it's only three years. Usually that provides some ability for the candidate to pursue otolaryngology related research and start with that and then pursue opportunities for research in the US. And I have to say, you know, unpaid fellowships, unpaid programs are kind of the norm. Occasionally you come across an opportunity that'll fund a position in a lab doing outcomes research or maybe even basic science research. Those are typically the ways by which you get there. And set aside five or six years to do that. So most people, when they hear that, they're obviously put off, but the committed ones see opportunity there, even if we tell them, okay, it's going to be a few years. And that's how you set aside the right candidate from the rest of the crowd. I'm glad you brought up cost because to have a potential unpaid position for three to five years, I'm sure for many people, that's out of the question potentially. Um, but you also mentioned some of the society-sponsored ones. Correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure the American Society of Pediatric Odo ASPO may have an international observership that may be sponsored. I'm not sure if the Academy does or not. Do you know of some of these, Amal? Yes, I certainly know ASPO. I've heard from my colleague, Dr. Kevin Pereira, who I have to say, he was uh, one of the motivating factors for me when I was pursuing a laryngology opportunity here in the US. He's been a fantastic proponent of laryngology research, short-term opportunities, visiting observerships or research opportunities for foreign graduates to pursue here in the US. Although they are short, they provide enough of an opportunity, I would say, in terms of duration to knock on some doors, get some responses from emails, 
And that's how you really start identifying an opportunity to pursue a paid fellowship here. And there is another way to do it, which is by matching into a fellowship, an actual clinical fellowship. And bear in mind, these are unaccredited ones that still provides you an ability to get your foot into the door by getting licensed in the US to practice medicine and then show people what you can do clinically. But alongside that, actually put together an academic resume for trying to match into a residency thereafter. It's a totally convoluted path, but I know people who've done it. So, you know, that's another way to do it. For those fellowships, many of them you said are unaccredited. So outside of the match, if, the, if there is a match system, how do the people find out about those? Is it word of mouth or is there websites or forums? Usually word of mouth, but most institutions actually list them in their GME or departmental web pages. And, you know, certainly by looking around on the internet, you might be able to write to people directly and pursue such an opportunity. Bear in mind, the system changed quite a bit a few years ago. That makes it very hard for you to match as a foreign graduate into an accredited program without going through USMLE and all of that. But some people have managed to do that as well. I do not know the specifics, but doing the fellowship makes you a candidate to try and make yourself known and by virtue of that match into a residency program. In terms of just kind of going back to the research part of it, let's say you're interested in head and neck cancer. Would a research fellowship or position in oncology or radiation oncology, like a non-ENT department or general surgery, ever help you to then maybe either show that, hey, I have the research experience and ability, have some connections to then either get you into ENT research? Or do you think it would also be a way to help you prepare yourself for matching into otolaryngology? I think, I mean, this is entirely based on my opinion. Doing non-otolaryngology research, unless it's so closely related, I would say, let's pick radiation oncology or medical oncology, where you're really just focused on head and neck malignancies, that might provide an opportunity. But I would dissuade anyone trying to pursue non-otolaryngology research if you're solitary goal is to try and match into otolaryngology or related subspecialties for fellowships. Yeah, I mean, we kind of see that same sort of question in terms of our U.S. medical students as well. You know, you have some students that will have done research in oncology, radiation oncology, or other surgical subspecialties or, you know, internal medicine, depending on their interests and sort of how to put those into context in their application as well. Obviously, it's different groups and things like that. Sometimes I didn't know if that also came up for the international medical graduate in terms of just trying to make the connections here. In terms of the USMLE, what kind of advice do you give now that it's pass-fail? I mean, does it make it more challenging, less challenging? Have you had feedback from people that you know who may be in the process taking it? I don't know anyone from the past two years, but I would imagine that step two is going to be much more important than before. Everything evolves over time, and I'm sure, you know, these opportunities also, they'll somewhat get modified. But if you had to use some quantitative metric to really filter out applicants, even among foreign graduates. If I were a program director, I would start with looking at step two score. I think the new step one, if you're just using step one as a pass-fail mechanism. And do you think it matters how or when the international medical graduate takes it? And are there certain resources that you recommend in preparation? 
So for the foreign graduate, how it works is we need to be certified by the ECFMG, the Educational Council for Foreign Medical Graduates. So it's an accreditation body that allows us to sit for any sort of visa sponsorship to pursue residency training. So contrary to the U.S. medical graduate or a medical student who only needs theoretically a step one result to apply for the foreign graduate, usually we need to be done with step one, two, and CS and be ECFMG certified to even apply. So that, that changes the equation quite a bit. So it doesn't matter what order you take, but you need to have all three done before you apply for ODO. And I think it is imperative. I think any sort of lack of information in that regard will possibly apply you to a filter. I think, you know, program directors could use these filters and you don't want to go through that filter not being ECFMG certified. So I think it's just bread and butter for a foreign graduate to pursue step one, CK and CS and be ECFMG certified. The whole process will take about two or three years, but that's minimum, unfortunately. And it's the same kind of question banks that everybody uses here in the U.S. that the international medical graduates could also use? Or do you have other recommendations for preparation for those tests? So if I remember from my time about 15 years ago, USMLE world has just come into being. It is a question bank that was quite informative to get an idea of what questions are being asked. And then the guidebooks, I remember most of us pursued Kaplan, if I remember correctly, yeah. but there might be other resources now. But the educational system, especially in the medical school environment, is quite different here. We have really focused on problem-based learning, whereas in India, it is a lot of memorization and trivia-based. So that sort of shift is what we need to acknowledge first. It's not really useful if we just pursue the memorization method, although there is quite a bit of data that we need to know, the facts and factoids. But at the same time, it rapidly moves over to a problem-based approach here for USMLE. So I think you need to really practice taking tests because the way we are tested in India is quite qualitative, writing essays and doing case studies and things like that. But here, we don't really have multiple choice questions for medical school tests. And I think that's a big difference. So getting used to that or forcing yourself to learn a different way of getting tested is one of the first steps to make sure you do well on the USMLE. In terms of putting together an application, you think of letters, a CV, a personal statement, any advice on who to get letters from, how, what to include in your essays, anything that you've noticed in terms of patterns or things that should be included that would be important as somebody's applying for a residency position? So when I look at applicants here, not as a program director, but just as faculty, I really value letters from physicians who the candidates have worked with. And many of those names, I mean, as you know, our community is quite small, so we all know each other. And most otolaryngology faculty write very honest assessments. And I think the bar is even higher for a foreign graduate. I think those letters need to be stellar. So I would really make sure that if you're an applicant, that you work with faculty, make sure, you know, you work hard and really earn those letters because those letters could make all the difference for you because all of the other metrics, such as the MSPE and medical school grades, they're very hard to verify and assess quantitatively here because we just don't have comparable systems. But those letters, they are very equalizing and they provide an opportunity for you to be considered 
on a similar footing as a U.S. medical graduate, although, like I said, the bar is quite high. Any tips or advice from your own experience when you are working with faculty or staff here as a international medical graduate? What did you find was helpful to you? Any like, don't do this or do this? Anything like that from your experience, Amal? Not really. I think for the committed applicant, they rapidly learn what to do and what not to do. And of course, over a period of four or five years, majority of the applicants really learn the game, especially if they're committed towards this cause. What I've seen is typical applicants, foreign graduates, they tend to be humble. They're extremely hardworking. I compare them to sub-eyes. Like our sub-eyes, I mean, it's just one of the most unforgiving positions that I know. You get judged on a minute-to-minute basis, right? I mean, or a 30-day period. I mean, you could you could be the most hardworking person, but on your last day, you said something that someone did not like. You, you know, you sat somewhere that people didn't really approve and the margin of error is quite tiny. But foreign graduates, they quickly learn and really all or none in terms of the opportunity. So I feel that just preserving those traits and consolidating them really make sure they are good applicants or at least they're applicants who people are not going to bring up negative points on the day of the interview that they did this or did that. Majority of the foreign medical graduate applicants that I've heard of usually get letters that say they are humble, they're hardworking, they're you know they're knowledgeable and they meet deadlines. They get work done on time and they have a good personality in terms of easygoing, easy to interact and just not boisterous people. In terms of essay writing, any tips on essay writing for the personal statement? I think they're quite rare, right? You come across maybe one a year, two a year, and I'm not sure if there's a pattern that will define them as a competitive applicant just based on the essay that they write. But that said, looking at U.S. examples would be beneficial to just make sure they don't come across as too different from a U.S. applicant. We talk a lot about implicit bias. Remember that I don't think there's any protection as a foreign graduate because you're not applying from here typically and, you know, you just have to distinguish yourself even higher. So that's why it is just very hard for a foreign graduate not having enough guidance. People have to figure out things on their own. But thinking about all those factors, I just feel that there's not much that we can actually set aside as, hey, this is the best personal statement that you can write. Yeah. Have your mentor, have somebody look at it because I have seen ones where I'm like, this isn't what I'm normally used to seeing, which maybe again, maybe my own implicit bias. However, whether it's language, basic things like grammar to what do the people reviewing the applications actually want to know about you? What's the important stuff? Because sometimes there's just so much stuff in there too. Teasing out the important information can be difficult. So I would agree. I'd have somebody look at it as well. You know what else is interesting? Hmm. Spellings. Use American spellings. Oh yeah. Color is C-O-L-O-R, not (laughs) C-O-L-O-U-R. Absolutely. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And just kind of going back to sort of the sub-I, and it is so hard, like you said. I remember being a sub-I and then to have to do it in another country and in a language that's not my primary language. I can't even imagine with intricacies of patient care and then trying to perform well. And I know we we say this, you know, the humble, hardworking, it's, it's very important. I do find that majority of the international medical graduates, whether it's working with fellows or medical students, people visiting, most of them are just so smart. I feel like they know more anatomy than I do sometimes. <laughs> like they're just super smart people. I would enjoy when they would kind of open up a little bit and kind of let me get to know who they are as a person as well, because there's such a high standard and 
it's very easy to fall into becoming very robotic because you have to be in order to kind of get it all done. Right. But if you can and you, you form a good relationship with one of your mentors, it's okay to, I think, open up and personalize it a little bit too. I don't know. Is that okay to say, Amal? What do you think? Or is that too mushy? <laughs> no, I agree in entirety. You know, and the other challenge is language, right? When I moved to the UK for the first time, I used to dread making a phone call. So, I mean, we all spoke in English, but obviously accents are different. And it used to be extremely fear-evoking. And moving here after that, after I'd just gotten used to another country, moving to the US was even more of a revelation. I mean, here you drive on the other side of the road. So there's so much change that we have to incorporate into our daily lives. But for the committed applicant, these are just regular things to do. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes, you know, whether it's humor or things that you read or watch and you see other people kind of bonding with that and you may not be able to partake and that can be very difficult or isolating. So find people that have shared experiences with you, become a team because that support system, you can't do it on your own. You want to have a support system there are people out there, uh, whether they're in the same right. position you are, having had gone through it as you did, or maybe you find a mentor that you can open up with a little bit and find that support. Because as I think you said, I'm all three to five years is a long time and that's pre-residency. Right. So now let's say you've matched into the program. What kinds of challenges would somebody who has matched have from getting a visa to your time and training? So the biggest challenge that foreign graduates face, unless they have something called a green card or permanent residence, is obtaining a visa. And that process is even harder now. Pandemic-related disruptions have made U.S. visa appointments like almost impossible. So a lot of these um, positions, they, they look at that very unfavorably. So I know that the standard visa for graduate medical education in the U.S. is called the J-Visa or the J-1, which carries two significant conditions. One is at the conclusion of your training, you have to return to your home country for a period of two years. So you cannot seek any other employment opportunities. The second restriction related to J1 is that you're allowed to train continuously on the J and you can keep renewing it while you're in the US, but visa is not the same as sponsorship. So that's where people get confused. Sponsorship for a J is done within the U.S., issuance of a visa is done outside the U.S. So you actually have to travel to your home country to a consulate or maybe even a third country to obtain a visa, which allows you to travel. So you've got family in another country. Sometimes you may have to travel. And I did that for all five years of my training. And I can tell you, it was quite cumbersome because the visa comes with just one year validity. So when you go back to your home country, your visa could be expired. And if you don't get your visa back from the consulate on time, you could be stuck in India or any other country that you're matching from, which poses incredible work-related and ethical challenges for program directors in the US, whether to keep that position. So I think the J visa is, is a sword that hangs over our head. And Unfortunately, it's quite rare to obtain what's called an H visa, which allows you to convert it into a green car more readily. So obtaining a visa and maintaining it, there are two new challenges, especially during this time right now with, with the pandemic-related disruption. Were you on the J? And if so, how many months ahead of that one year coming up, would you have to talk to your program director and make those plans? Like, how did that work for you? So fortunately... University of Maryland had already had a foreign graduate 
someone with a very illustrious career, Dr. Rona Hatsano. So my program was sort of used to it, the JVs. In fact, we've always been comfortable with matching foreign graduates come in with excellent resumes, such as, uh, you know, Chandala, for example. I have to take a step back and say, I do not speak for the program. It's just my independent and personal opinion there. But there are some additional conditions associated with the JV. So you cannot apply for it longer than, I think, six months in advance. You cannot visit, you cannot step foot in the U.S., even after issuance of the visa, more than 10 days before start date. So which means if July 1st is your start date, basically you can be here only after June 20th. So that's another complication. So you're basically coming in here during the time of pre-residency paperwork without a credit card, without a U.S. social security number, none of that stuff, except if you were already working in the U.S., as a research scholar or something that that let you have a social security number, credit card and, you know, and so on. So that was my case when I didn't even have the ability. I mean, I didn't have a driver's license in the U.S. So I had to go and take the test in the middle of my surgical internship. And I was taking the train and the bus, the public bus, which is quite challenging in Baltimore. So it's tough. But once I got my driver's license, buying a car was also a challenge because you don't have a credit history in this country. So these are things, I mean, they sort themselves out over time, but this is why, in my opinion, the J visa needs to be disbanded. I mean, unfortunately, it's one of those instances where it doesn't really affect the general public. So there's been no legislative action to correct these problems associated with the J visa. And it's just unfortunate. Every year, it punishes the person who, keep in mind, spent only five years to get this. So I just feel my time trying to get the visa and coming into this country was as challenging as the time that I spent trying to match into this position. So from a program side, how do we help make some of this better? A different visa, so the H1 potentially, are there downsides to that? Why is it that the institutions prefer to have the J1 visa in terms of driver's license, housing? What kinds of information systems that should already be set up and in place to help make that transition easier for our international medical graduate? Because this is applicable, whether it's otolaryngology to any other specialty. Right. So fortunately, some of the more, I would say, foreign graduate friendly programs such as internal medicine. I mean, keep in mind, I would say 90% of foreign graduates are trying to match into internal medicine, pediatrics, and maybe even general surgery, but it's rare to try and match into oncology and specialties like that. So the competitive specialties, the programs are not really aware of the visa-related intricacies until they match one or until they've had one graduate from the program. So I think from a programmatic aspect, there's not much that can be done because visas are typically not handled by the program itself. It is by the institution where the candidate matches. So in my case, University of Maryland Medical Center was responsible for getting the paperwork in order to to get the visa. And because they've had foreign graduates match into other specialties here and there, the institution had a process in place. So interestingly, it's actually not that challenging to get the sponsorship in order to secure the visa. It's more so after you get the visa, what happens to the candidate, what's involved in the whole process of trying to get a paper stamp that actually issues or I would say certifies that visa. 
those are the complexities. On the other hand, the H visa is much harder to get because the burden of paperwork on part of the program or the institution, that's significantly more. So I would say competitive programs or institutions, they don't really offer H visas principally related to the fact that it just involves getting a lawyer and petitioning USCIS to get that stuff in order. But I think making or improving the J visa involves legislative action. I don't foresee it anytime in the future. I don't know if there is a straightforward fix other than the candidate to be aware of it. I know many people have never traveled during the course of their training, whether it is otolaryngology or internal medicine. For three years, they don't want to take the risk of losing the visa status or being stopped at the port of entry because some paperwork is missing or something like that. So I know many individuals, I know friends who've been here in this country for five, six years until they've really finished all their training and they travel only after they've gotten a job to get their next visa, which is usually an H visa. Wow, that is huge. I didn't even think about the visa logistics and how difficult it is every year. I realize that the visa is an institution level process. And I wonder if is that something that the AAMC or AMA, is there any advocacy for legislation to make that process better that you're aware of? Yes. So actually, there have been many bills. I've tracked some of these bills as I really thought of them as light at the end of the tunnel, especially during training. I used to see these bills introduced by congressmen and congresswomen. Interestingly, if you if you go and track some of these bills, there are not programs, there are websites that actually give you the probability of those bills going to the next level. And majority of them are at zero percent, as in they, they're just bills introduced with no traction at all. So I think we have to just accept the fact that nothing's going to change in the near to intermediate future. And we just have to be prepared. And, and this is going to be lifelong until really you get to your green card or yeah, green card. That's really when these problems go away. Wow. That's a shame. My parents are both international medical graduates. They came over my dad in 69 and my mom in 71. They did their residencies here, anesthesia and physical medicine and rehab. And they were part of the healthcare system in Shreveport, Louisiana for the last close to 40 years. And they weren't the only two. There was a community of Indian physicians that contributed and practiced and are still practicing uh, close to 40 years in Shreveport, Louisiana. So when you think about the amount of work it takes and all the barriers in place, and yet the amount of contribution that our international medical graduates contribute pre-COVID, during COVID, now, and years and years of it, it's something to really reevaluate and value significantly. So you did your residency, you came to UT, we had fun when you did your fellowship. Tell me about your job search. What kinds of things did you have to think about in terms of finding a position? What kinds of things did you have to consider in your contract negotiations? So the interesting thing was I, I had not really prepared for any sort of negotiation because as a J1 person, you couldn't really negotiate other than getting your visa in order. I mean, so that's another challenge that faces it. But my preference was to get an academic position. Something that was a pure clinical position was maybe a plan C for me. I've loved doing academic medicine thus far, and I'm glad it all worked out at University of Maryland. My chair hired me with the intent of making sure that I had enough time protected for research. He was another great influence, Dr. Scott Strom. He's now dean at UT Memphis. So I really think that was important for me. And also, if you are a J1 visa holder in laryngology or 
maybe even other specialties. Keep in mind that job search is somewhat constrained by the type of visas that you can get. So if you need an H visa, you need to be in an underserved area for three years. So your contracts can have to stipulate that. And those are minimum criteria to actually get the what's called a J-1 visa waiver, which gets rid of the two-year home country return requirement. As the years have gone by, I see fewer and fewer physicians return to India or any other home country, primarily because, as you know, once you leave the U.S. now, it's really hard to, as a foreign graduate, to get a position back here. You lose the footing that you've had, having overcome all those barriers related to residency and pre-residency and stuff like that. If you choose to return to India, for example, it might be a little bit more challenging to get a job back in the country. So I think people are now searching more so for the J-1 waiver job. I didn't get a J-1 waiver job initially, but I did eventually get one. So finally, I'm on track to get a permanent residency. So to go back to your point, I think the ideal type of job, I mean, it depends on your personal preference, but I've always wanted to be an academician. That's what I trained for. And at the end of the day, a job that ensures a balance between what I did clinically and in terms of research and teaching, that that's the ideal job for me. I wish we had more time to kind of get into your career and actually want to have you come back on because for our audience who doesn't know you, y'all, Amal is an associate professor with NIH grants who does a lot of big data and AI in pediatric sleep apnea and has patents. So I would love to have you come back on and I would love to get more into your career accomplishments and not just the accomplishments, but the journey and the amount that your research is going to contribute to the field. But as we start wrapping it up, do you have any final thoughts or pearls or th things that you wish you knew or what you know now for the international medical graduates who are interested in applying to an otolaryngology residency in the U.S.? So, Gopi, as you know, you, you've interacted with other foreign graduates uh, in otolaryngology, if I remember. Yes, Hussein Jafal. He was one of our pediatric Odo fellows a couple of years ago. Currently, Helene Debu is there as a current fellow. They were both from the American University of Beirut. So in terms of the application process, they both came in as fellows. A little bit different because the American University of Beirut is ACGME. So they did their residencies there. But in terms of like visas and things like that, same process through the institution. I had the opportunity to work with you, Amal. You're my colleague, my friend, my partner. I call you when I have difficult clinical situations, professional questions, all kinds of things. You're my friend. So to me, the international medical graduate is a person that should be valued and has so much knowledge and really a gift to give. Um, there's a lot of commitment there. And I've learned a ton. Also from your uh, LSU Oh, Sherry and Nathan. Absolutely. She was on one of our earlier episodes, maybe number seven or eight when we first started Backtable. She was head neck cancer at, and the chairwoman at LSU in Shreveport, Louisiana. Check her episode out. She's got pearls as well. She did research at Hopkins and uh, again, brilliant contributor, mover and a shaker of our fields for decades now. And when you meet her, you're just like, oh my God, this this individual is amazing because you get to know her as a person within literally an instant because she's just so down to earth as well. So my message to the aspiring foreign graduate or laryngology residency applicant is be aware of the challenges lie ahead, but it is really critical that you enjoy the ride. I don't think you'd hear a person complain about the timing, you know, yeah, all these were barriers, but at the same time, it made me a better person overall. It made my life more interesting and I've had more experiences now. This extremely convoluted path that I took from 
relatively small town in southern India, all the way to, you know, where I am today. And I'm really thankful to those experiences and, you know, the individuals that shape those experiences. So I think these experiences really make it worthwhile. So don't be discouraged, but at the same time, be aware of the challenges. And if you're committed enough to overcoming them, you'll have a fantastic time building your career here in the U.S. Absolutely. Amal, are you on any social media if anybody has a question for you or anything like that? I'm on LinkedIn. Okay, perfect. So reach out to Amal Isaiah on LinkedIn if you have any questions or thoughts on the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time, Amal. It's always so fun to talk to you. And I love picking your brain about this stuff as well. For our listeners, thank you for stopping by. If you have any questions, suggestions, or topic ideas, please reach out to us. And I think it's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.